Let's go before the Lord in prayer this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you as we come this morning that you have given us your word to hear. But God, we, we pray as we have read this morning in Matthew, we know God just because the gospel is preached doesn't mean that, that we hear that it takes root. Um, that it must find good soil. And Lord, that's, that's our prayer, that your word would find good soil this morning and bear fruit to your glory. So we pray for the unction of your Holy Spirit, that it would ignite your word this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. As we uh, come to a new year, uh, I thought what I would do is just take some time before we get into our next study, which will be the book of Hebrews, uh, just take some time to just walk through some, some basic truths to maybe set us on a good path as we look forward to, to 2020 and what the Lord might have for us ahead. And so this morning, I want us just to sort of look at the, the question of what makes a great church? What makes a, a faithful church, a, an, an influential church? Uh, some people might say a gospel-focused church or maybe a gospel-centered church. Maybe that's the, the better term to use. And as you think about church and as you talk with Christians, you find out that people have a lot of different ideas of what church is about. Um, I think in the last 20 years or so, I believe it's, it's safe to say that most would say that a faithful church or a gospel-centered church is a church that's growing numerically. It's a place where things are happening. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a church that ministers to, to everyone, offering programs for the entire family. They have kids programs and youth programs and, and adult programs, seniors programs, programs for a handicapped, whatever there's just something for, for everyone. I, I've even seen uh, Christians who have uh, attended a church and, and been satisfied there and everything. And then when their kids get to be youth, then they go to a church just for the youth program. It doesn't matter. And oftentimes uh, I've even seen it where the teaching's not been that good or even the body life's not been that good. But they go there only for the sake of being there for that program for, for their kids. And so there's a lot of things that... People look for in churches and ways that they, they think about what church is and who is to do it and everything. But there are other churches and denominations even that, that really prioritize other things. There are some that really put more of a focus on external holiness. You know, these would be churches that maybe teach about not drinking alcohol or, or, or going to movies or maybe dressing a certain way. And where, where people in the congregation look very much alike because there's sort of that sense of uh, an external look and appearance that they're seeking to, to cultivate. There are other churches, and this maybe is where we as Reformed churches have a tendency to fall into, that are seek to be more doctrinally accurate and precise. For, for some, it's the idea of being a, a more confessional church and uh, appreciating great theology. It's a church where the teaching is, is deep and it stimulates the intellect but there's other churches that maybe their focus is much more uh, on the place of the joy of the Holy Spirit and acts of mercy. Um, it's a church that focuses more on the needs of others and on social justice and maybe a sense of community. And, and these are just a few examples. I'm sure if you talked with other Christians, you would get other ideas of what people are looking for and what their expectations are about the church and what the church ought to be about. And, and how the church ought to do these things for them. But with all these different perspectives, how do we know 
if our church is a faithful church, if our church is a gospel-focused church, well, uh, we have the beauty of God's word to tell us. And uh, as we look at First Corinthians, Corinthians, First Thessalonians, chapter one, uh, we see Paul talking to a church that he loved very much, and he says in verses six and seven, he goes, "And you became imitators of us." And of the Lord, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, the church at Thessalonica was not large. It was not an impressive church, at least not by today's standards, uh, as what a church would be. But it was very influential. And if you look back at verses 7 and following, it says, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. In other words, the report of their conversion has, has really spread everywhere. And, and these Thessalonians, these, the Thessalonian believers, were examples to the believers in other areas as well. And you saw here in them a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they were living boldly for Christ. So, so it's a church that has a, a gospel influence on a wide scale, even though they were a relatively small group of people. And as, as we think about that, I mean, do we not want to be that kind of church? Do we not want to be a church that other Christians are talking about? I mean, in a positive way. Okay, not in a negative way, in a positive way. Don't we want to be a church that would encourage others where we see the gospel being spread and where other churches would hear about Kirk of the Plains and they would be encouraged in their walk with the Lord and their ministry and their churches? But... As we look at that, shouldn't every church be that way? Uh, I think the answer, obviously, is yes, but, but not every church is that way. And, and what sets a, a gospel-focused church, a gospel-centered church, apart from other churches that may be distracted by other things? Well, there's a couple things that we see in a gospel-focused church. First of all, that they understand what their foundation is as a church that they understand what their foundation is as a church. You know, just like a, a church building uh, has a good foundation, so does a gospel-focused church. It has a, has a good foundation. And, and such a church understands, and I want you to hear this, that men don't build great churches. God builds great churches. That men or people don't build great churches. God is the one who builds great churches. And if you look at uh, verse 2, Paul says, he opens by saying, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Now, why does he give thanks to God? Because he sees this as, as a work of God. When, when he looks at the church at Thessalonica, he sees God's fingerprints all over that church. Uh, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, verse 10, when we went through the book of Ephesians, he, he saw this church as God's workmanship, as something that God has created and that God has fashioned and formed in a city. And as we think of the church, whether that be in Thessalonica or whether that be in Andover, Kansas, the reality is, is that we exist because God has placed us here. 
Uh, Kirk of the Plains is not here because someone had a vision to plant a church. That's not why we're here. Nor will this church continue because it is the will of any person or even a, a group of people. Um, nor because it has a preacher that is just such a fantastic preacher that he just draws people in from all over the, the state. That's not me, by the way. But, you know, even if you get a preacher like that, you know, it's, that's not why Crook of the Plains would exist or, or any other efforts of man. Now, I know this can almost sound cliche because we've said it so much. But Jesus tells us why the church is here. Because he is the one who builds his church. And that's the confidence that we have as a, a, a church body as we go in to, to 2020. But Paul talks more about this, uh, this foundation that, he, that has been laid here in this church. Uh, Paul recognizes that this is an eternal foundation. Look at verse 4, if you would. Uh, Paul says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now that word chosen means election. God has elected you. Okay, now if you're not raised Presbyterians, you may think that this is something that only Presbyterians make a big deal about election. Uh, or that theologians speak about these kind of things behind closed doors, you know. But that's not the case. I mean, Paul talks about it a lot. If you don't believe me, just read his letters and, and you'll see when, when he talks about election, he's thinking about uh, the beautiful, sovereign, eternal love of God. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God. Now, how do you spell election? I, I, a preacher told me this one time. Uh, this is very insightful. He says, how do you spell election? L-O-V-E-D. L-O-V-E-D. Loved. That God has set his love Upon his people, that God, before the foundation of the world, knew and loved the Thessalonians and you and I who are his. So that means in, in all of our weakness and all of our sin and all the judgment that we deserve, the father knew you. He knew his children and he set his love upon you and gave you Jesus so that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for the sins of his people. It's an, it's an unbelievable love that, that we do not deserve, and yet God loves us this way. And it's a wonderful thing to think about as, as we think about each other, too, in our relationship with one another. I mean, look at the person next to you if you want to. Yeah, stare at them. Make them feel uncomfortable if you want. But look at them. And if, if that is someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ, and, and, and you've seen the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, they're not just a believer. They're not just somebody who believes very similarly to the way you believe. That, but, but this is someone who is precious enough to God that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for them. Now, notice Paul's confidence in this. He doesn't say, I think you may have been elected, or I hope that you've been chosen, or I'm fairly confident that you were elected. No, Paul says, we know. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me feel a little uncomfortable. You know, because whenever it comes to election, I want to go back to verses like Deuteronomy 29, 29. You know, that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. We don't know the mind of God. We don't know who the elect are. I mean, can we, can we really know that? You know, well, we don't know that in each individual person. But, but Paul is telling us here that we can know as we see the signs of the works of the Holy Spirit in a group of people. 
And that's what he sees in this group of people. He sees the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of God's electing love. And, and he doesn't take that lightly. Now, now, what was it that Paul saw uh, in this body of believers that would cause him to make such a statement as this? Well, if you look at verse 5, he saw that the gospel came with power and came with conviction. That the gospel came with power and conviction. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, if you look at Acts chapter 17, you don't have to turn there, but you can just write that down in your notes. Go back and look at it later. I think it's like the first nine verses. It's very short. That's the, that's the backstory to the, the beginning of the church at Thessalonica. And, and Paul comes and he's, he's just preached the gospel for like three Sundays in a row. And, and people were repenting and coming to faith in Christ. As a matter of fact, so much so, it made the Jews very angry and they began to oppose them. So this church actually was born sort of in the midst of, of affliction. But, it, but as Paul is preaching, he preaches Christ persuasively, we see in Acts 17. But Paul did not put his confidence in his preaching because he says that his message did not come only with words. Now, it did come with words. Obviously, he spoke, but it came with the power and the Holy Spirit in full of conviction. It was a sense in which the people heard the gospel message and there was a response to that message. There was one of understanding their sin and, and, and in a sense of a need for repentance and a call to place their faith in God's promises and in his character. But I think too often, uh, preaching is spoken only with words. The gospel is preached, but it's just words. It's just a man saying things. They're, they're true things, and they're good things. And, and they're things that people in the congregation can sit, and they can nod their heads. Yeah, preacher, that's right. Amen. I mean, we, as Presbyterians, we don't say amen out loud, but we sort of do it with our heads, right? We nod. Yeah, yeah, amen, amen. Yeah, and they can do that. And it happens every Sunday in churches probably all around the world. I know at least all around our country. And what's unfortunate is, is that we can be okay with that. We can be content with that. That it's preaching that's only done with words. And, and I'd say for the few maybe that aren't content with that, too often they simply complain about the pastor's preaching and they put the onus on him, which he has to take responsibility. But, but that's not... Paul. Paul was not content with that. He, he doesn't want a ministry of only words. What, what Paul sought, what, what he looked for, was a ministry of power, of the power of the Holy Spirit, and of conviction as, a people, of, as, as people heard the gospel preached. Paul wants and expects a ministry where the words are being spoken, and then God is igniting those words and making them the power of God unto salvation. Preaching where God is present and where he is doing only what God can do to bring conviction that leads to repentance and obedience. That's what Paul wants. And we know that because if you remember when we went through the book of Ephesians, as we got to the end of that book in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, what did Paul ask for, for from the Ephesian church? He said, pray for me. Pray for me that I could preach the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because he doesn't want just a ministry of words. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Do we believe that? 
We know that, but the question is, are we, are we praying for the power of the gospel to be at work in our lives? Kids, what about you? Teenagers, young people, you know, is, is their Holy Spirit presence in the words spoken to you from, from Scripture? Is, is, is their Holy Spirit conviction and assurance in your life as you hear the word of God? Do you come expectantly that God will speak to you through his word as you, as you read your Bible during the week, as you, as you gather with your family for worship, as you come to Sunday school or to, to hear the preaching of the word? Do you come expectantly? God, I trust that you will speak to me. Do you, do you pray for God to, pre, to be present with us on Sundays and to speak through the preaching and teaching of the word of God? You see, it takes divine power to create a Christian, but also it takes that same divine power to cause him to grow and to sustain him until he goes home to be with the Lord. And that's why when we see folks like Mrs. Query, who walks with the Lord for all these years, while it's a sad time, we can also delight in that, to see God's faithfulness uh, in that person's life. And, and it's not only important that we see that power in the work of believers, but even and especially so in the life of those who are lost. Because sinful people don't like to hear about the day of judgment. Rebellious people don't like to hear that they must submit to King Jesus. Pure out proud people don't like to hear that they can't save themselves. Those things are very offensive. Religious, moral people don't like to hear that God won't accept their works of righteousness. People don't like what the church is selling. What the church is saying. And we can't make them love it because the flesh rebels against it. The only way that the church can do that if the church changes its message. And, and it's true that, that some might be willing to accept some of the ideas of Christianity. You know, maybe take on some of the good characteristics, maybe make their life a, a little bit better. But they're not willing to submit to Christ and to the gospel. They'll not give up what they want just to follow Jesus because it costs. And they will not do this unless the power of God is at work in their hearts where the power becomes irresistible. I want you to hear this. The Holy Spirit is the flame that ignites the fuel of the Word of God. That's not, that's not uh, original with me. I don't remember where I got it. But, but the Holy Spirit, it's so true. The Holy Spirit is the flame that ignites the fuel of the Word of God. And too often, I think, when we talk about being a gospel-focused church or a gospel-centered church, we act as if the gospel is nothing more than the words or the message that we share. And if we share just the right message, then things will happen. And I think as Christians, maybe sometimes we've even become disillusioned and we think, well, I've shared the gospel, but nothing happened. But the gospel message must be set aflame by the Holy Spirit and his work. It was in Thessalonica when the word is spoken with power, what you're going to see is that sense of full conviction and a full assurance that everything that God's word says is true. And that's why Paul is so excited about these believers, because they are the evidence of the work of God in their midst, that we see that God's salvation is true and right, that God is reconciling himself to sinners through Christ, not just back then, but he is doing that today. 
by the power of God as the gospel is preached, as the Holy Spirit ignites the message in the hearts of dead people and causes them to come to life. And that's how we know who the elect are. I think sometimes when we talk about people's faith in Christ, we'll say, yeah, I think they're a believer because they used to attend church or because they prayed a prayer. Or, and we always sort of focus on what people have done. But that's not how the Bible talks about people who are, who are new creatures in Christ. He talks about what the Holy Spirit is doing, not what we have done in the past, but what the Holy Spirit is currently doing in that person's life. And unfortunately, I believe that Satan is tempting churches to build on foundations other than God's electing love and the powerful work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. But as we look to 2020, we need to ask ourselves, what is our foundation here at Kirk of the Plains? What are we trusting in to be an influential church? What are we trusting in to be a faithful church? And we must remember what our foundation is. It's not what we do, but it's what we are looking for God to do something in our midst. The second thing is that not only does a gospel-focused church understand its foundation, but also it is evidenced by the fruit. The fruit or evidence of a gospel-focused church. What does that look like? Well, look at verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope, in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see what Paul talks about? Faith, hope, and love. Those are the classic marks of a gospel-focused church. And I want to just run through these just very quickly uh, as we continue. First of all, the work of faith. Uh, that may sound a little strange to us at first. You know, maybe you've always been taught that faith and works, you know, that uh, maybe you've always been thought of faith and works as contrary things. You know, we're saved by faith, not by works. Uh, we are saved by faith alone. And that's true. And Paul does talk about that. But if you remember, as we went through Ephesians, you know, we, we looked at verses uh, 8 and 10 of chapter 2. And we said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? So it is by grace through faith. But he goes on. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We would expect that good works would come out of true faith. A faith that saves gives evidence that faith exists. A faith that does not have evidence or works is not a saving faith, as James tells us. So believing something is, is, is true is, is not the same thing as, as faith. I mean, even the demons, James tells us in James 2.19, even the demons believe and they shudder, right? But faith, so faith is not just believing that something is true. Faith um, is not just saying, I understand something in my head, but faith is what you do with your life. Faith uh, results in obedience in, to God. Now, not perfect obedience, but trusting in Him. So we have the work of faith. But also he says that he sees in the midst of these Christians a labor of love. When, when Paul thinks of a Christian, he thinks of someone where faith is working through love. Okay, the, the two go hand in hand. If you want to look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, <clears throat> excuse me, turn back just a couple of pages to Galatians 5, verse 6. Paul says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcised nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. 
You see, those two ideas go together. As we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it will demonstrate itself in love. Now, we use that term labor of love to talk about someone who does something and they don't get paid for it, right? They just sort of, you know, sacrifice. And to some extent, that's what Paul is talking about. But, but when he speaks of the work of faith and the labor of love, we think of work and labor as, as being synonymous. But he actually uses two different words here. And the word labor means a strenuous ex- exertion. Um, it, it means doing something and it's really hard to do. Okay, so we're talking about somebody who labors, somebody who, 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 who seeks to love others, which is really hard. But you're persevering and holding on and moving forward for love's sake. And, and the best example I can think of this is maybe of a, 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 well, actually it could probably be any parent. But let's just take the parent of a special needs child who gives day in and day out to care for their child. And, and honestly, those parents are weary. They are tired and they are weary in that service. But what keeps them going on? It's the love that they have for their child. And, and that's the same kind of love that Christians have. That we keep pressing on. We keep moving on because of the love that has been shown us in Jesus Christ. And we love him. And so we continue to love others. So for the Christians at Thessalonica, it was it was hard to live out their faith. As I said, they, they were actually being persecuted. Paul and Silas actually were driven out of Thessalonica to, to Berea because they wanted to kill them and wanted to arrest them. And, and even some in the church were arrested and had to put up bail money to, to be able to be let go. It, it, was, a, it was a difficult time. But, but they continued in that labor of love. They kept pressing forward. And, 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 uh, and Paul even says in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12, he says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. He wanted them not only to have that love, but to, to, to abound and to even grow in that love more and more. And I pray that we may abound and grow in our labor of love for each other as a local church body. Um, how might God be challenging you this morning uh, in your labor of love? Um, I, you know, I think it's great that our church body loves one another. And I watch us, I watch you cook meals for each other. And I watch you walk through uh, difficulties with one another. And that's great. And, and it's good to, to, to show that love in those special times of need. But there's probably nothing that shows us our love or our lack of love as loving our households, of loving our families. That's where the rubber really meets the road because these are people that were around all the time. The needs don't seem so special. Matter of fact, they, sometimes they seem rather, rather difficult and rather challenging. But where is God calling us to love one another? But then he also talks about a steadfast hope in verse 3. Um, Paul doesn't use the word hope like we do. You know, we say, well, I hope this happens or I hope that happens. But, but rather the hope he's talking about is a hope that we place in a person, and that is in Jesus Christ. And, and, and here, this small group of believers in this city were putting a steadfast hope in Jesus Christ because he is the Lord of the universe and the master of their lives. Uh, and so they were a church of great influence, not because they were great, but because of where they were putting their hope. Uh, and that was... In, in, in Christ himself. 
uh, they didn't just profess Christ in a prayer at some point in their life. But if you look at verse 9, it says that they turn from their idols to serve Christ. That was, it was a lifestyle. For them, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God. That's, that's, that's language of repentance. The turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You see, they recognize who Jesus is and, and that he is worthy to be served. Now, as I said, that doesn't mean that they're sinless, but the trajectory of their life was one of change. And, and their desire had, had changed. Now, that didn't mean that they weren't ever tempted uh, to do otherwise, but they had put their hope on Jesus. And, and not only Jesus for the salvation that he had given to them, but, but even as they looked into the future, look at verse 10, and, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, they were looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, one of the great marks of faith of this young church was is they were sustained by looking forward to Christ coming again. It was a functional part of their life that they lived their lives in light of eternity and that Christ would come again. Where's our confidence as a church? What are we hoping in to be a gospel-focused church of influence in Andover and the surrounding areas? You know, there's definitely a cost to following Jesus Christ. Um, maybe not so much as what others pay. Um, Pastor Yi, I think that's how you pronounce his name, who was arrested in China for nine years this week. He was arrested for nine years to be put in prison because he pre preached the gospel. You know, we don't suffer like that. Okay, we, we, we definitely don't. We, we may sacrifice a little of our time or money or abilities, and, and, and that's good. But, but Jesus really doesn't want us to sacrifice what we have for him. Instead, he desires that the gospel so fills us by the work of the Holy Spirit that we no longer desire to sacrifice things for him, but rather that our lives become a sacrifice to him. As Paul talks about in Romans 12:1, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to him, that Jesus would become the treasure of our heart, that we would want to be with him, that we would want to be like him, that we would desire him. You see, that's God's vision for his church. And, and I just love how the Bible helps us to praise God for everything that he's done. That as a church, a church exists because it is God's work from beginning to end. And so as we look forward to the future of our church and wh where it is that we are going this year, I want to direct your attention not to me as a pastor, not even to the elders of our church that oversee and to care for your church. I want to point your vision to Jesus. And I want to ask you to pray to Jesus that, that, that he would work in our midst. That as, as we come on Sunday mornings, I want you to pray for your pastor. I want you to pray that he could preach the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not that he would be a great preacher. Not that people would be wowed in the things he says. They'd walk away going, wow, that guy's brilliant. You know, but that we would see God, by the Holy Spirit, ignite the, the words of his revealed word to us. And we would take these things to heart. And uh, these things would be applied to our lives. And so let me suggest to you that 
as we go forward that we put God to the test in essence. Not, not in a bad way. But let us take him at his word and trust in the foundation that he has laid. His electing love and the mighty work of his Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word. Let us look to God to continue to build up his kingdom. So let us continue to pray for the lost, but to look to the Lord to do these things. So if you're here today and you think, but I'm not very good at sharing the gospel. I would say probably you're not alone if that's where you're at. But I would ask you to trust that God could use a vessel like you to share Jesus Christ and that he is as weak as that vessel might be, maybe even as cracked as that vessel might be, that God could do a mighty work to continue to add to their numbers daily those that were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And that we would be a church of works of faith, labors of love and steadfast hope. Uh, in our God, that we would understand that God has saved us, not just to forgive us our sins, but that he might use us to bring glory to him. Amen? God is good. Let's bow our heads and meditate upon these things this morning. God, we want to thank you so much for your words of encouragement to us from the scriptures. Um, we are a people who are so fickle. God, we make resolutions and about the middle of this month, or maybe if we have great resolve, maybe by the middle of next month, uh, we've already broken those things and we've already forgotten those things. But I pray that uh, you would, and we're so thankful that the things that we do as a church, and not just on Sunday mornings or on Wednesdays when we gather, but even throughout the week, Lord, that that they are uh, eternal matters. God, that they are, are things that, that we are uh, looking to you to uh, work and to act in and through your people, that your name might be glorified. We pray that you would demonstrate yourself, Lord, this year uh, as we trust in your promises. Uh, God, but you know that that the world is a is a place that's always like the sirens in Greek mythology calling us to themselves. Uh, Lord, it's so easy for us to be distracted. But I pray for the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives and in our hearts that you would uh, continue to work in us to sanctify us. And Lord, not just individually or as, as households, but Lord, as, as a church family as well. And even with other churches as well, that the name of Jesus would be exalted and that God, you would be glorified. That's what we want more than anything, not for our comfort. And so Lord, even we know that these things may come through trials and they may come through difficulties. And I know that there are many who have been walking through trials for some time. Uh, Lord, the, the, there were probably trials down the road that we don't even anticipate. Let us not lose heart, but let us know that even in the midst of those things, that you are still at work and that you are exalting your, your name in ways that we couldn't even imagine. So, Lord, help us not to lose heart, but encourage us, God. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's... Uh,